This week, an overlooked science celebrity. I regard him as the greatest physicist in a period spanning 1,700 years. And the dangers of almost light-speed financial trading. No one really understands how these algorithms interact and what the possibilities are for system-wide kinds of um, scary events. Plus, Darwin's finches get the 21st century sequencing treatment. This is The Nature Podcast for the 12th of February 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh. It's Charles Darwin's 206th birthday this week. Rather than splashing out on that many candles, we thought we'd honour the great man's life by broadcasting an update to one of his own studies, the family tree of Darwin's finches. During his famous voyage aboard the Beagle, he chanced upon these birds in the Galapagos archipelago. He noticed that they all looked similar, but for the shape of their beaks, which varied dramatically. This fortuitous spot of birdwatching likely influenced his early thinking on his theory of natural selection. These birds, which later became known as Darwin's finches, make up what's called an adaptive radiation, where a single ancestor diversifies into a multitude of forms. Leif Anderson from Uppsala University and his team have taken a 21st century approach to these birds and sequenced all of their genomes. They've uncovered a key gene in their beak evolution and made some interesting tweaks to this iconic family tree. Here's Leif. What you could say is that Galapagos is like a laboratory for evolution. So Galapagos is not more than five million years old. And one and a half million years ago, the ancestors of these birds came to the island. And then they have diversified to utilize the different food resources like insects, seeds, uh, nectar, for instance. And that they have done by reshaping the beak of the ancestors. Right. Now, it's fair to say that you have now brought the study of Darwin's finches into the 2010s. How have you done that? So we decided to use this new wonderful tool of next-generation sequencing, as we say. So the the technology that allows you to sequence any organism at a reasonable cost. And we thought that if we can get information from the whole genome, then we should have all the information that is there to try to reconstruct the evolutionary history of the Darwin finches and try to see the signatures of selection of those genes that have contributed to the adaptive evolution of the finches. Now, obviously, these finches being such an iconic bunch of species, researchers have already drawn their family tree. Armed with the genomic data now then, how did your tree match up? There was overall a good agreement, but there were interesting discrepancies. So, for instance, we found examples of three populations that have been classified as one species because they were very similar. They looked similar. But when we got the DNA sequence, we saw that they were three distinct species. And an important discovery we made by doing this was that we saw that there has been uh, hybridization between species have taken place throughout this radiation. And we could see that this is an ongoing process, that during the evolution of Darwin finches, now and then there is hybridization between species. And, and in some cases, this has contributed to the evolution of the birds. Isn't this a bit paradoxical, though, that there are such clear differences in beak morphology and yet there are genes being shared around between the species? How come they haven't sort of all merged back into hybrids? The thing is that, you know, it's the balance between gene flow and selection 
So selection can overcome this effect of, of gene flow. And in some place, could take advantage of the gene flow. I mean, to, to reuse a genetic variants that were selected in one species and then could be taken up by another species. So they still differs in their uh, lifestyle, but they could still share genetic variants. Now, obviously, if you look at these birds, as we've mentioned, the first thing that separates them is their beak morphology. One of the other aims of your study was to try and pin down the genes behind this variation in beak shape. Did you get any promising-looking candidates? So we classified species as either having a pointed beak or the blunt beak. And then we scanned the whole genome to look for where the birds with the blunt beak were similar to each other, but different from the one with pointed beaks assuming that that would be the regions that have responded to selection. And when we did the screen, we got 15 top candidate regions. But we focused on perhaps the most important gene during this, this evolution. And that turned out to be a gene called ALX1. And ALX1 codes for a transcription factor. And a transcription factor regulates the gene expression of other genes. What is interesting with, with this particular gene is that it's all has been shown that mutations in humans that inactivate this gene lead to severe disorder in craniofacial development. Right, so this makes perfect sense as a candidate for a gene that would be behind the diversity in beak shape. Absolutely. And so you looked at the, the role of this gene through you know, deep evolutionary time, but there's also a classic recent story of these species responding to a drought uh, in 1987. Did this gene look like it played a role there? Yes. So when we had identified this difference between the pointed and the blunt beak, then we screened that across all the species. And what was very interesting was that for, in most species, they were either pointed or blunt, and that matched with their phenotype. But there is a species called the medium ground finch, and that we found out that this ALX1 was variable there. So some had the blunt and some had the pointed. And that was particularly interesting because one of the very important discoveries that Peter and Rosemary Grant has done during their years on the Galapagos is that they have seen rapid evolution of beak shape in just this species, the medium ground finch. So therefore we decided to investigate more birds. So we investigated some 60 birds of the medium ground finch and we could show that in fact this variance that we see across species also explain the variation within the medium ground finch, which means that we now have identified a gene that have contributed to this rapid evolution that the grants have documented during their field work on on the Galapagos. That was Leif Anderson from Uppsala University. Coming up in the research highlights, polyglot primates and headstrong bees. But first, that story on speedy trading. It's hard to forget the financial crisis of 2008. But in May of 2010 the stock market did something else unexpected and scary. I mean, you're now dropping uh, three or 400 points here in the past few minutes. Well, I mean, like when I came down, it was... Without warning, and very quickly, it crashed. In 15 minutes, the Dow Jones Index had lost almost 10% of its value. You're listening here to a report from that day in 2010 from CNBC. Saying when I ask them what the heck is going on down here, uh, I don't know. There is fear. This is capitulation, really. I mean, it is classic capitulation. There is fear in this market. You can take a look. Right now, we're sitting down 875 points, Aaron. The Dow bottomed out at about 900 points down, and then almost as quickly, it recovered. 
There's never just one reason why something like this happens. But some of the blame lies with something called high-frequency trading. This is a name for the firms that specialise in making lots and lots of trades very quickly, all through algorithms, to capitalise on different prices in different parts of the market. That day in 2010, all their algorithms bailed out at the same time. When I said they trade quickly, I meant it. In one second, these algorithms can make up to 100,000 trades. It's getting to the stage where their speed is limited only by the laws of physics. On the line to explain how that works is science writer Mark Buchanan, who's written about trading at almost the speed of light in a comment piece this week. Trading's gotten a lot faster in the past 10 years or so. Trading in, in US markets became open to basically anyone who wanted to participate. And this has set off a real scramble by firms to ramp up their trading speed. Some computer platforms are being offered that can handle more than 100,000 trades per second for a single client. And you may wonder, you know, how on earth would anyone want to trade at that speed? Because you usually think of trading as something where you have some real economic insight. But trading nowadays, most of it, over over 50%, is happening by these these computers at, at very fast speeds. It's, it's a totally different world. I might ask you about the, the dangers of it in just a minute. Um, but first, I'm sort of interested in how firms ensure that they can make these really fast transactions. I mean, are they just staffed by physicists or what? There's lots of physicists, lots of mathematicians computer scientists. Basically, what they, what they do is they set up algorithms, simple, fairly simple algorithms because they want to act really quickly. And those algorithms monitor the price data that's streaming in from the various exchanges. And they're buying and selling in a totally automated way out of the control of any human being on this very fast timescale, 100,000 trades per second. What, what's going to stop it from being even faster? Perhaps nothing. And, and there's, there's a lot of concern about what some of the regulators are calling an arms race. So people just pour more and more technology into getting faster transmission lines. So you want your computer to be right next to the exchange so that it's connected to the exchange by a cable that's only a few feet long. And if your cable is two feet longer than someone else's cable, you're going to be a little bit behind them in making the trade and you're going to suffer for it. These exchanges actually sell space within their own building to some of these trading firms. They call it co-locating. And then there's a scramble to transmit speed as quickly as possible. So there's now you know, a new transatlantic cable being put in between London and New York. It's only about 300 miles shorter than the, the cable that's already in place. But that 300 miles means that they're cutting about 2.6 milliseconds off the one-way transfer speed between those, those two trading centers. What can be, as we hinted at earlier, some of the dangers, perhaps, of, of trading being this automated and this quick? Some people say that uh, it, it's just totally useless. Um, this is just a kind of zero-sum game between financial teams scrambling to take little tiny profits out of the market. And it's really not doing anything connected to real economic um, activity. A second argument is that it's it's quite dangerous. So back in 2010... There was this famous event called the flash crash. Those things have become much more frequent um, than they were 10 years ago. And this is all apparently because of this interaction between these different algorithms that are operating at very high speeds, automated, no human involvement. And no one really understands how these algorithms interact and what the possibilities are for system-wide kinds of um, scary events. 
I guess the kind of algorithm side, the only limit to that is human ingenuity and the canniness of your computer. But there are some kind of fundamental physical limits too, right? And we're, you know, you've written this piece because nature has an issue, special issue this week on light. Right. The fastest you can possibly send a signal is the speed of light. And so I mentioned this transatlantic cable, and it's a fiber optic cable. And so that's it's basically glass, light moving through glass. And light in glass travels about two-thirds of the speed of light in air. So that's really fast, but it's not quite as fast as it could be. And this is why people have moved to using radio waves, you know, lasers, microwaves um, through the air in trading centers around New York, New Jersey, and the London to Frankfurt corridor, because that's that moves at, at the actual speed of light. There's an, uh, some more technology coming online, which is called hollow core fibers. And these are fibers that... Um, there's actually a, a small space of air within the fiber, and so the light actually travels at the, at the real speed of light. So those things will, will be the next thing to come online. A little bit further into the future, where perhaps the speed of trading is is uh, even more increased, and one potential implication of that is, you know, to increase speeds between New York and London, we'll need some kind of mass to stand on between New York and London. What, what's this idea? Can you tell us a bit more? Right, so the idea is that if you take two trading centers, take Chicago and London. So the, the midpoint between Chicago and London, I don't know where it is exactly, but it's in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. Now, if you stand at that particular point, if information is coming to you at the speed of light from both Chicago and London, you can get that information from both centers faster than anyone else on the planet can. So it could be that in the next 10 years, we'll start to see whether it's boats, you know, in, in strange places floating in the sea doing trading or, you know, drones hovering over uh, the middle of the desert somewhere. Who knows what the future will be, but there is a real possibility for that kind of um, trading to be profitable. That was science writer Mark Buchanan, whose newest book is called Forecast. Find his comment piece in Nature's Year of Light special at nature.com slash year of light. Coming up, the Arabic physicist who was way ahead of his time. But before that, it's the research highlights you've been waiting for. Here's Emily Bannum. Where food is concerned, most of us are happy to learn the local lingo to get some grub overseas. Paella, croissant, katsuobushi. That's Japanese for dried tuna flakes. Well, apparently chimpanzees do the same. A group of seven chimps were moved from a zoo in the Netherlands to a UK zoo joining six other captive chimps. When they arrived, and for a while after, the Dutch chimps were using a high-pitched call to refer to apples, whereas the UK chimps grunted deeply for the fruit. But after three years, the Dutch chimps had adopted their neighbours' calls. This finding suggests that chimps can learn new words, and hints that the building blocks of language might have been in place earlier than previously thought. That paper is in Current Biology. Bee colonies, already stressed out by parasites and diseases, have another problem. Their young bees are too headstrong. When colonies are at risk, bees fly the hive earlier to forage. But a new study of radio-tagged bees shows that bees that started foraging younger didn't survive as long. Add to that the fact that they therefore bring back less food for everyone else, and you rapidly get a collapse. Supplementing colonies' food could help stave off a bee decline. That paper is in PNAS.
A crater on the moon is named after him. An asteroid bears his name, and his writing influenced Leonardo da Vinci, Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton. Ibn el-Haytham was an Islamic scholar, and a thousand years ago he wrote a book on the behaviour and properties of light, aka optics. Physicist Jim Al-Khalili has been re-reading Ibn al-Haytham's book as part of Nature's Year of Light celebrations. He told Charlotte Stoddart why he thinks the book and its author deserve more attention. Even though he wouldn't have been called that at the time, he was a physicist, first and foremost. And I regard him as the greatest physicist in a period spanning 1,700 years between Archimedes, the greatest physicist of antiquity, and Newton, the greatest physicist of all time. If, if he's the greatest in that period, then, then I'm putting him above Kepler and Galileo, which I, I'm sure a lot of scientists would disagree about. But such was his influence, certainly his book of optics, that he really does need to be put back in his rightful place among the very greatest scientists in history. And I think this year, International Year of Light, we're celebrating the millennial anniversary of his book of optics, is an excellent opportunity to, to redress that issue. Can you just give us a little flavour of the book? The book comes in seven volumes uh, and it covers rudimentary optics like reflection and refraction of light, but also, interestingly, he developed a theory of vision, how we see, because that was something that the ancient Greeks couldn't agree upon or got into an incredible muddle about. What's so lovely about this book is that it's essentially like a, a modern science textbook you know it, what it, it defines how we do science because he describes experiments and how he sets up the experiment and his results is there a particular highlight something that you really think resonates today or is just really interesting well i think what what is was most fascinating in his book is is in in the early volumes where he talks about vision and 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 how vision works the ancient greeks couldn't agree on whether the way we see objects is by shining light on them from our eye some inner fire they called it or light coming into our eye from the object. So these were two different theories of light called the intromission and extromission theories of vision. Ibn al-Haytham comes along and says, look, if you've got to see an object you, and, and you say light shines from your eye, it's got to bounce off the object, but it's got to come back into your eye again for you to be aware of that object. So if light's got to come into your eye, why can't it just come directly from the object? Why do you have to shine light on it from your eye? So he simplifies this whole idea. Nowadays, we think, well, that's of course, that's obvious. But back then, you know, he was casting doubt on many centuries of, of Greek thinking. So his explanation of, of vision is uh, pretty, pretty spot on. Is there anything that he gets spectacularly wrong in this book? Uh, well, I guess what, what he doesn't do very well is explain uh, refraction. Uh, he, he was certainly aware that light travels at different speeds through different media. You know, it slows down when it goes from air into glass and water. But, you know, even the Greeks were aware of that. Aristotle talks about the speed of light being dependent on the density of the medium that it's travelling through. So this idea that light slows down when it goes through media was known to Ibn al-Haytham. But he doesn't explain light, you know, as, as waves that get bent as they pass through the boundary, say, from air to, to water. Um, he regards refraction and reflection as the same thing. So he says reflection is just a, um, an extreme form of refraction. 
You mentioned that Ibn al-Haytham's book reads like a textbook, almost a treatise on scientific method. How much of an influence did he have on the way we do science today? Usually in the West we talk about the founders of the modern scientific method as being people like Bacon and Descartes. Uh, But actually, you know, he was many centuries before them. Um, Ibn al-Haytham talks about how one must cast doubt on the writings of earlier scholars, however important they may be. And he gets into trouble for this, but he starts off a movement called uh, The Doubts. In Arabic, it's called El Shukuk, where he says, you know, don't believe everything you read. Check it for yourself. If you have an idea, do an experiment, and if if uh, you get a result, ask someone else to repeat the experiment to see if they get the same result. And if you get something that disagrees with your Um, idea or your hypothesis, you have to throw that idea away and come up with something else. So, you know, what he's saying is exactly the way we still do science today. You mentioned that the book wasn't immediately a big hit, but it was subsequently translated into Latin and read in Europe. What kind of an influence did it have on other scholars? It was certainly important for lots of physicists, certainly people like Kepler, who did some incredible work on optics, made use of it. People like Newton and Galileo and Kepler were were so important in the history of physics that you sort of forget the contribution of earlier scholars because they take such a great leap forward. But inevitably, of course, science doesn't work like that. People don't work in a vacuum. Newton himself talks about standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, one of those giants was Ibn al-Haytham. That was Jim Al-Khalili, who's a physicist and TV presenter. Finally this week, as always, it's the News Chat, and Richard Van Norden is here with his favourite stories. Now, first, Richard, the big news, at least in the UK, in science this past week, has been the UK Parliament voting to allow so-called three-parent babies. Uh, Ewan Calloway, who wrote the story, is going to hate me for calling them that. Uh, Remind us what this is about. This is about the vote in the UK, as you say, to allow what might more properly be called mitochondrial transplants. Now, mitochondria are the power packs in our cells. They have their own bits of DNA outside of the nucleus in our cells that gives us the DNA that controls everything else about us. And children who have mitochondrial mutations, this typically affects energy-hungry tissues like the brain and the heart and the muscles. And in some cases, these just cease to function. And women can carry these mutations without having symptoms themselves, but can pass it on to their children who experience some lethal conditions like muscular dystrophy or diabetes. The idea is that if we could replace the DNA of the mitochondria, we could have embryos that don't have these mutations. This is actually modifying the germline of children. Now, obviously, um, ethically, this is a bit of a, a difficulty. And the historic news last week was that the UK House of Commons voted to allow it, pending it being proved safe and effective. And what does this mean? The story this week in in Nature's print issue looks at what this means for other countries elsewhere in the world, because this is a kind of a precedent that the UK is setting. Exactly. We looked at what other countries think. So Shukrat Metalipov at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, he said, you know, the UK is taking the lead, but the US is going down the same path. He's had an application pending with the Food and Drug Administration for about two years to try and get permission to conduct clinical trials of this. Now, in the US, the FDA has enforced a moratorium on this. It's not actually legally explicitly banned it, but there's a moratorium. And there's a series of scientific and ethical and policy reviews that are still underway. Now, in Australia, which is also thinking about three-person IVF, 
their lawmakers opted against relaxing their rules, but they are looking at the UK vote and that's going to provide huge ammunition for people seeking changes. But David Thorburn, who's a geneticist at the University of Melbourne in Australia, said he doesn't think anything is likely to succeed until it's been done in practice in the UK. Whether it's the theoretical basis or the actual clinical use of this technique, basically everyone's looking to the UK to see how it goes. Exactly. And I should say that in the UK, the House of Commons has voted for it, but we're still waiting for the House of Lords to approve it. And even if the law is passed, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, the HFEA, will have to licence clinics to actually carry out the procedure. And that will be done on a case-by-case basis. Possibly the first application will be at Newcastle University uh, with a woman who has, um, she's carrying harmful mitochondrial mutations, although she doesn't experience any symptoms herself. So the hope is that she could have children that don't have mitochondrial mutations. Now, of course, that story of mitochondrial replacement is kind of a classic example of the impact of basic research, you know, years down the line once all the the basic pipetting has been done. And your second story, Richard, digests a UK plan to measure these kinds of impacts. This is a unique exercise. The UK has collected almost 7,000 stories to capture what were the wider impacts of science. It's really an amazing data set or set of narratives And in the story this week, we're analysing what these stories tell us about the cultural, the social, the economic benefits of scholarship. It includes the arts and humanities as well. Also wondering whether anyone else will ever bother to do this again. Really, it was an incredible exercise that required a lot of hassle. And other countries are looking at this. They're a bit unsure about whether they would attempt something like this. What was the drive behind it? This isn't just glorified PR, is it, for British science? Well, to some extent, maybe it was. But the drive is that funding bodies are kind of obsessed by how does the science we fund benefit society? And there's a great political pressure to demonstrate that it does. This is about rewarding academics for the effects of work they've already done in the last five years. And this was, as you said earlier, a lot of work for those people involved. Right. At University College London alone, they wrote 300 case studies. They hired four full-time staff members and it took around 15 person years of work, I was told. And lots of people hired specialist writers. And what we've ended up with is incredible tales. I mean, we have anything from chemists using nanoparticles to prevent bacteria damaging the wood of a sunken Tudor warship, which is now on display in a museum, to uh, economists who are looking at poor households in Mexico and Colombia and looking at whether trials of cash transfers to these households helped. We have geologists who measured soils in Kosovan refugee camps and found high levels of lead and the occupants were moved to safer ground. So we're talking about the worldwide impact of all kinds of research. And researchers did feel that this is bringing out the quality of their research that isn't necessarily up there in the elite in scholarship, but could actually be more useful and more helpful. All the research that goes to change public policy, to change nursing practices, stuff that's really practically useful and and should be funded. These stories were all scored, and we actually did a text mining analysis to find out which words were impressive and which words weren't. And we found that words like major and million and market and global got high scores. Whereas if you overused words like impact, conference, projects, you tended to get lower scores. There's perhaps a little bit of a clue there about how do you impress the judges. You mentioned that this exercise took into account sciences, humanities, arts, across the board scholarship. Um, Who did well, who did badly? Was there a difference in the impact of 
different disciplines? Basically, clinical medicine and healthcare did the best. They got the highest marks. Everybody else was much of a muchness. Quite interesting, actually, when you think that English or history was judged to have have as much impact as chemistry or physics. In the meantime, I've written my own draft of a case study using your text mining data, and uh, hopefully this will do really well. Millions of virus particles escaped from my lab and caused a global pandemic and a crash in the stock market. Success? Brilliant, Kerry. Well, I mean, that's a great point, of course. These are good news stories. And this wasn't a comprehensive look. So universities, of course, they only showed the good news. So this is really just tell us your best and we'll forget about the rest kind of exercise. And I should stick to podcasting, shouldn't I? No, I think I think you used all the right words in the right order. There's certainly a big impact there. Thank you to Richard Van Norden, our most impactful journalist. Thanks for listening to another Nature Podcast. We'll be back next week. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Mush. 